Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Did you appreciate the choir this morning, church? What a blessing it is to celebrate our Lord's birth with such beautiful and talented uh, music and musicians. And so now we have an even greater joy, I trust, that we might hear from God in His Word. And so I invite you to turn into the Gospel of Luke this morning, a familiar passage to us all. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. And I would encourage you uh, to, if you don't have a Bible, you could take a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you'll turn to page 855 to find that passage of Scripture. Uh, And if you're not familiar with using the Bible, uh, the Bible's broken up in different books. There are 66 books in the Bible, and those books are divided in chapters. And so the large number you'll see is the chapter number, and so we'll be in Luke chapter 1, and then you'll see a series of smaller numbers. Those are the verse numbers. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 26. In fact, if you don't have a copy of God's Word at all, we'd love for you to just take that, that hardbound Bible right in front of you. You take that home as our Christmas gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of the very Word of God. And so now well, here we are in Luke chapter 1, as we consider God's Word this morning. Hear now the Word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month of her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Our Father, we are thankful now that we can, after great, such great stirring praise, that we can now come and perhaps even quiet our hearts a little bit and still our souls, that we might hear from you, that you might speak to us through your word in a very familiar story, but it might, it might uh, find a new wonder in our hearts as we consider the coming of our Lord on our behalf to save us from our sins. We believe that Jesus is our Savior and one that we are desperately in need of. And so we are today and shall be forever eternally grateful that you would love us and send your son for us. We want to consider that story this morning, a story that you have given us. And in considering it, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and the Holy Spirit, that we would understand you more and be changed more in the likeness of your son, that we might bring you glory. 
We pray for those here who um, are not Christians, Father, and we pray that you might even open their hearts as you have opened all of us who are in Christ. You open our hearts one day to receive Jesus. May you do so even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was on March 23rd in the year 1743 when Handel's Messiah was first performed in London. Uh, The king there was present. And if you've ever uh, experienced Handel's Messiah, it's a very moving piece of music. Uh, In particular, the the part of the the music called the Hallelujah Chorus. And and they begin to sing, this great uh, choir begin to sing, For the Lord God Omnipotent Reigneth. And the whole audience at this time, way back in 1743, including the king, sprang uh, to their feet and remained standing throughout the entire chorus. And since that time, it's been a custom, if you ever attended a performance of uh, Handel's Messiah, to stand whenever the chorus is performed. And yet the the custom changed a a little bit. Uh, That is, the custom of the, the British monarch standing changed. A hundred years later, when Queen Victoria had just ascended to the throne, this this young woman, we might even call her a girl at the time, she went to uh, hear Handel's uh, Messiah. And her court instructors told her that she must not rise, as the Queen of England, when everybody else rises during the Hallelujah Chorus. And so they got to that, that, that point when the choir began to, to sing, Hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And everyone stood to their feet except Victoria, who remained seated, though she did so with great trouble. In fact, the chorus began to go on, and they eventually got to that wonderful part where they began to proclaim Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and she could stay seated no longer. The queen rose and stood with her head bowed before her king. I want to speak to you this morning of the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. Uh, It is amazing to me, even as we've already read this story, that the King would come to us in such humble means. Glorious means, but humble means. Well, we really are, I believe, um, perhaps I'm biased, but I really believe we're picking up really at the beginning of the greatest story of all times. And as I've already prayed, I pray that that new wonder would rise in our heart this morning, that that we we might even rise in our hearts and sing in our souls as we hear God's word, hallelujah to this King of kings and Lord of lords, as we consider his glory, first shown to us in a great deal of meekness, isn't it? Consider, first of all, the glory of Jesus in his meekness, for the the passage begins there in verse 26 when we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, when we call a Nazareth a city, we're not, we're not, it's not a city like New York's a city. It's a city like Hamilton's a city, okay? Not, not much of a city at all, to be perfectly honest. Just a, 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 one, a wonderful town, I'm sure, but just a simple town, a, a rural town. We think Nazareth probably had about 200 people living within it. These um, individuals would be mostly poor. They would live um, in in, uh, homes about 500 to 600 square feet with dirt floors and even a place for animals inside the home as well. So it wasn't much to speak of when you think about Nazareth. In fact, it was kind of uh, the halfway point between the cities of Tyre and, and Sidon. And, and so it's like when you, you ever work, take the back roads on a road trip and you run out, you get low on gas and you have to stop in just a little old town, little Main Street town, and, and you go to the gas station and for some reason a bunch of people are hanging out at the gas station. 
This ever happened to you? And they all kind of look at you, and they realize you're not from there, and you all are realizing you're not from there either, and so you just want to get out as soon as possible. Well, that's kind of like Nazareth. That's at least in, the, in my mind. This is where this is all taking place. This poor, rural uh, people, most of whom would uh, undoubtedly be illiterate, very, very simple people. And it's in this town that the angel Gabriel shows up. He finds a home, and there a girl alone, uh, neck deep in wedding invitations, dreaming about her marriage to her beloved, as you see in verse 27, to the virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And there Mary is. I don't know what you picture in your mind when you think of Mary. I think sometimes we picture like maybe a, a 30-year-old woman with perfect hair, right, and embroidered clothing, you know, no dirt under her fingernails, certainly. And there she is. She's sitting on a crown, maybe even a, with a halo upon her head. Right? That would be a picture that Mary herself would not recognize. Mary was a peasant girl. Mar- Mary, Mary pulled water from the well. Mary collected uh, firewood. Mary was usually dirty. Mary sat on a stool, not a throne, if she had so at all. And she certainly wasn't 30 when this happened. She was most likely somewhere between the age of 13 and 14. Most women at this time, if they're married, um, they, they'd be married early into puberty. Maybe at the age of 15 is the typical time when uh, young women were married um, in this culture. And so here the angel comes, and you know uh, he's, he's going to trust this, uh, what, 14-year-old girl with the Son of God. I, I, have, I have a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old. I have trouble trusting them with a cell phone, okay? And, uh, and, and yet here they are. And this young girl, uh, here, uh, we're going to give you the Son of God. Of course, she's not alone because we're told that she is betrothed. Betrothed. That's very much like uh, our engagement, but far more formal. See, back in this day, um, marriages were arranged by parents, as I think all marriages should be, by the way, but that's another message. (laughs) And and, uh, they are formally the witnessed uh, engagements or betrothals, where actually at the beginning of betrothal, this publicly engaged uh, ceremony where the the man would would exchange money um, or a bride price or a dowry, um, and the woman at that point would, though... Though not married, she would be legally his wife. And they, they would not live together, but it's during this period of betrothal, only divorce can separate them now. In fact, if, if, or not just divorce, if, if, if someone died, for instance, if the man died, the woman would be considered a widow. This, this betrothal period would typically last a year for the woman to prove her chastity and for the man to build a home, usually as an addition to his father's home. At the end of betrothal, there'll be a marriage feast, sometimes taking all, all about a, a, a week. And at the very end, the friend of the groom would hand him his wife, and they would go into their new home, and everybody would leave them to their privacy. We see this man's name, of course, there in verse 27. As you already know, don't you? It's Joseph. Um, he is of the line of David, which means he's royalty. But we also know, of course, there has been no Jewish king on the throne for hundreds of years. So royalty didn't matter much at all. I think of Joseph in my mind, I don't know what you think of, a 16, 17-year-old kind of broke kid working a, a simple job, hoping to meet the girl of his dreams, right? In a town of 200, there's not a lot of options, but uh, he, he found Mary, and uh, they're off to a good start. Um, and so here it is. Uh, this is the kind of the, set in the context, isn't it? And the angel comes, and he has this message for her. He begins this conversation there in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. He comes and says to Mary, you have received God's favor. And that word favor there is the, actually literally uh, and typically translated grace. 
It's the same word that whenever we see grace in the Bible, that's the word that's used there for favor. So God, the angel comes and says, Mary, you, you, have, you have been given grace by God. In other words, Mary, with the honor that's about to be bestowed upon Mary is not something she earned or deserved. There are other virgins in Israel. And yet God, in his grace, has, has chosen to pour it out upon Mary, pour out this grace upon Mary. I think this is important for her to realize because parents like to boast in their children. Right? And dads, you say, you know, have you seen my, my son uh, throw, throw a, a fastball? Or do you see my boy turn that double play? Or, or we, we say, have, have you seen my, my girl, you know, uh, 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 play the piano, we might say. Well, Mary might be tempted to say, have you seen my son walk on water? Right? And, and so you, you have this temptation to begin to boast about your son and your children. And Gabriel wants to destroy any foundation of boasting, doesn't he? He says, no, Mary, listen. The reason all this is about to happen to you is because that God has been abundantly and exceedingly gracious to you. To you. Mary is the recipient of grace, which, of course, if you're in Christ, the same is true for you, isn't it? And the same is true for me, right? You have been favored by God. And so we might have, I might even started this service with something like, greetings, O favored ones, the Lord is with you. And that would be true, that, that, that God visited us with Grace. That's the heart of Christianity. That's the gospel. Christianity is about taking nobodies from nowhere and bestowing grace upon them. Which is why we can't stop doing things like cantata. That's why we can't stop praising him for it. Not because of what we earned and what we've accomplished, but because God has been so very good to us. He's been gracious to us, as he was to Mary. And yet she was a bit troubled, wasn't she? As you see in verse 29. But she was great. In fact, not more than a bit. She was greatly troubled at the saying. It shook her a little bit. So Charles, it would, would shake most 14-year-old girls who have never left their town. And she's thinking, there's a reason you're here. If you read on in Luke's Gospel, you'll see that Mary, though young, is very biblically literate, has an incredible uh, understanding and grasp of Scripture. She's going to write this beautiful song. Uh, and, and she undoubtedly knows that when angels show up, they show up for a reason. They're usually showing up to ask for hard things. And so she begins to think about this as you read on in verse 29 and try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What do you mean God has been gracious to me? What do you mean the Lord has been to me? And she begins to contemplate this. I like this picture of Mary. You know she's not hysterical as maybe some might be, especially at this age. She does, she's, not, you know, she's not crying out, Mom, there's an angel in the living room. Right? Um, she, she, she's thinking about it. She's uh, contemplating. She's reflective. Not flighty or shallow, but Mary seems to be a deep thinker. The angel seems to notice her pondering as he responds to her in verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. And he reaffirms, for you have found favor with God. Same word, grace. You have been given grace by God. He sees that she's upset. Listen, no, this is, this is news of grace. God has given you grace. And I just say by way of kind of footnote, uh, we, we, sh- we would do right to dismiss the silly idea that Mary is some type of co-redeemer, as some have suggested. It's almost as if Jesus is a reluctant redeemer, um, but he can't resist his mother. And so if you go and you talk to his mom, then, then he'll come and, and be uh, kind to you and redeem you. I want you to be very clear that these verses do not say, as a mistranslation does, that perhaps you've seen, that, that Mary was full of grace. That's not at all what it says. It's not the idea that she has so much grace, as some have taught, that she, she has extra grace and therefore able to give grace to people because she has so much she doesn't need. No, that's not what's happening here at all. For the Bible is very clear there's one mediator between God and man, 
And it is not Mary, it is her son, the Lord Christ Jesus. Mary is simply a humble peasant girl who loves God. So the question is, why did he choose her? I mean, it's a strange choice, isn't it? Certainly a meek choice. You, 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 I mean, it's somewhat stunning, I think, if we allow uh, the familiarity to kind of wash off to, to realize that this, this message is not proclaimed to the multitudes, but just one person. And, and not in a metropolis, but in a little village. And not in an in influential province, but, it, but up in Galilee, sometimes called Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee is like the equivalent to America, like Idaho, Okay. And Idaho's wonderful, I'm sure, I've never been, and, uh, but it's not, not the most prominent place in, the, in our nation. And so this is way far off from the seat of power. And there he goes, that's where he's going. He doesn't go to someone of wealth, but someone of poverty. He doesn't go to someone who's educated, but someone who's simple. He doesn't go to the temple, where he's surrounded by worshipers to make this proclamation. He goes to a little house. He doesn't even go to a woman, but to a, to a girl. Mary is poor, uneducated peasant girl living in a small country town far from the center of power. And God chooses her. You see we, see, we see in this choice, as we see throughout Scripture, that God is always choosing the humble. God is always choosing the marginalized and the cast off. In fact, in Mary's song, that's primarily what she'll sing about. That Jesus, of course, had to be born to someone. So what did God decide to do? He decided to pick someone who is common, someone who is lowly, to show us, I think, who it is that Jesus comes for. Jesus comes for, not for the powerful, but for the meek, for the marginalized, for the, those who are in great need. In fact, we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, Moses is just a baby floating in a river. And he's one day given God's laws. Da- David is a, the least of, what, seven brothers or thereabouts, just uh, the youngest. And he would uh, he one day become the world's greatest king. The apostles are farmers and fishermen and even a tax collector among them. They are weak and doubting. They are ignorant and selfish. And yet God would choose them to build the foundation of his church. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus would say, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I think even when we see in this choice, we see the meekness of Jesus. And that ought to be a great encouragement to you. For he he is humble enough to be with Mary, and he is humble enough to be with you and with me. Nobody's from nowhere favored by God. Jesus wants to be with you. He does. We call him Emmanuel, especially this time of year, God with us. He wants to be with you, not because you're amazing, but because he is. He is the God of grace. Well, you also see, of course, not just meekness, but majesty. Notice, secondly, the glory of Christ in his majesty. We pick up in verse 31. And behold, the angel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So the first news, now we're getting to the content of what's going on. And Mary, good news, you're going to have a son. This will be a, a, a bit of surprise to her, I trust. And by the way, your son, if, if that weren't enough, happens to be the Savior. And we, I know he doesn't use the word Savior there, but he does explain to Mary that she's going to call her son. He names her son for her, and his name is going to be Jesus. Jesus means, you might know, God saves. In fact, this connection is explicitly drawn in Matthew's account. For we read, you shall call his name Jesus, also uh, the words of the angel. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the boy you're going to have is someone who's going to come and save. And here we begin to see how Christianity distinguishes itself from every other world religion. Where all of the world's religions, they have a founder that comes and says, Listen, I've come to show you the way to God. 
and you got to do this, and you do that, and you got to pray this direction or visit this place, and here's the list, and here are the rules, and this is what you need to do in order to make your way to God. In other words, you might say, this is what you need to do to save yourself. Well, Jesus comes not to, not to lay out the, the list that you have to do to save yourselves. He actually comes to do the saving. He is the great Savior. He will, in fact, save you from your sins. He will live the perfectly obedient life that you should live, but haven't. And he will die the death that we all should die because of our sin, but will not if we are in Christ. That is a death that bears the wrath of God. He is, you have a son. His name is Jesus. He's the Savior. And by the way, he, he's great. Uh, notice what he says there in verse 32. He, he will be great, he says. I think that's a bit of an understatement, to be honest. It's like saying the sun is warm, okay? Uh, He's going to be great. We throw around the word great quite a bit. Have a great day. You know, have a a great Christmas. Boy, that was a great sandwich and and all the rest, right? And we constantly say everything's great. But Jesus is far more than that. He's extraordinary. He's splendid. He's magnificent. He's distinguished. He's powerful. He's eminent. He's majestic. Through him, creation was made. He is the perfect reflection of the Father. He will pay for the world's sins. So yeah, he's great, but let's take it a little bit farther just so we understand. In fact, if you gather all the, all the greatest thinkers from every land and every country, from every century, you put them in a room with Jesus, they will all shut their mouths and listen. He far exceeds everyone to the thousandth degree. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do that is 10,000 times better in any noble human achievement than the person of your greatest admiration. The world falls at the greatness of Jesus. And so Gabe, I don't know if he, he just doesn't know how to explain all that. I mean, it's so majestic. So he says, listen, he's going to be great. Mary, you're going to be a mom. Your son's going to be great. And he's going to be the savior of the world. And if that weren't enough, he continues to explain what he will do. Um, verse 32, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom there will not be no end. You see the, the expression of royalty there, throne, reign, kingdom. Gabriel mentions a king is about to be born. This will be particularly important for, for Mary to understand because God for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, has been preparing them for this moment. There is in the Old Testament promise after promise after promise. The son of David is coming. Uh, the king is coming. Again and again and again, a savior is coming. A messiah is coming. The Lord is coming. Jeremiah 23, for instance, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. Written 700 years before this event. You see, what the angel is saying is, Mary, all those times you've heard about the Messiah, you know, in synagogue, you've heard the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. You're going to be his mother. That's what I'm here to tell you. And he will be a king like no other. For the angel says he will reign forever. And as if, if it wasn't clear, reign over the house of Jacob forever. And that's not clear. He puts it in the negative, doesn't he? And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Right? There'll be no end. He'll be the eternal king. So with Jesus, there are no, no new elections. Amen? Amen. There's no term limits. There's no successor. Every kingdom in the world will end except one, the kingdom of God. 
The Bible says in Revelation chapter 11, the loud voices in heaven said, the kingdom of the worlds have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so I tell you, based upon the word of God this morning, that every monarch that has ever reigned, every president that has ever led, every government that has ever been formed, every judge that has ever sat upon his bench, and every general that has commanded his armies, one day shall bow at the feet of King Jesus. He is not simply a child in a manger. He is not simply a babe in the arms of Mary. Today at 1142 on December 15th, year of our Lord 2019, Jesus Christ is alive and reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it will never, ever end. That's the promise of Christmas. Therefore, my friends, you cannot dismiss him so easily. Cannot set him aside. He sits upon a throne and he demands to be reckoned. I mean, can you even imagine in your mind's eye? Just think for a moment. Can you picture Christ upon a throne in the throne room of heaven? And can you imagine yourself approaching that throne, the throne of the Savior of the world, the Lord of heaven and earth? And there you are walking before. What will you do on that day? How will it go for you then? I think that depends entirely upon what we do with him in this life, isn't it? He invites you to come to him. You know, the scripture ends in Revelation chapter 22 with the words of Jesus. I, Jesus, say, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's his offer to you even now. He will quench all that you thirst for. He will meet your greatest desires for he knows who you are. He has made you. The king of kings would quench that, that thirst forever if you would yield to him in faith. He said, what was it going to cost me? Nothing. Christ paid it all. You take that water of life, he says, without price. In light of verses like this, I can never understand why anybody would walk away and say, no, no, thank you. I prefer not. When Christ offers us such unimaginable uh, blessings and indeed eternal life in him, you might think, well, what kind of person can do that? How how, how is that even possible? Well, I think the angel tells us there in verse 32, doesn't he? For he he continues uh, and and he says that he will be the son of the most high. In verse 35, he calls him the son of God. That, in other words, he's just not Mary's son or the Davidic son. He is God's son. He is, this has been affirmed throughout Scripture. The devil acknowledged it. Uh, the apostles acknowledged it. Jesus said as much. The law, Father from heaven said twice, this is my beloved son. In other words, Jesus is not a, simply a prophet. Uh, he is not simply a good teacher. He is not simply a moral leader. The angel comes and says, Mary, your son is going to be the very son of the most high God. Now listen, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? I mean, I, 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 the way I lay it out, I see six predictions. One, Mary, you're going to conceive a son. Number two, name him Jesus because he'll be the Savior. Number three, he's going to be great. Number four, he'll be on the throne of, uh, of, his, uh, of King David. Number five, he's going to reign forever. And for good measure, number six, he'll be the son of, of the Most High God. So you got six kind of rapid-fire, centuries-old prophecies that begin with the pregnancy and end in the eternal state uh, with the second person of the Trinity reigning. And, and, and there you are, Mary. That's what he comes to share. 
with her. And it seems to me, uh, in light of all that he says, Mary is still kind of stuck on number one. Uh, did you say I was going to have a baby? Right? Look what she says in verse 34. And Mary said to the Lord, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. Right? This is like, I'm sorry, what? Can we, can we do this again? Because she's just having her morning coffee or whatever, and an angel shows up and says, uh, though you're a virgin, you're going to give birth to the Messiah in nine months, who will uh, save the world from their sin. And she thinks, well, how? How? I'm a virgin. You know, she asked the angel a question. I just want to say as a side, um, you, you want, you, is it okay to have questions about religion? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I recognize there are some kind of faith communities that say no questions, no doubts, right? Just believe. We, we, don't, we don't ask questions. We just say yes and we, we believe. Uh, I, it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions if you're open to the truth. Some people doubt and are close to the truth. Some people doubt but are open to the truth. Mary's open to the truth. She wants answers, even though she's struggling here a bit. She says, I want to know. And it's in answer to this question in verse 34 that the angel goes on to describe the glory of Jesus, thirdly and lastly, in his might. In his might. How am I going to have a child since I'm a virgin? How can I have a baby if I have no husband, she asks. The reply from the angel is, oh, this one's not going to need a husband. As you see in verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He says the Holy Spirit, Mary, is going to come upon you. You remember the Holy Spirit was active in creation in Genesis chapter 1, I think it's verse 2, that the Holy Spirit uh, kind of uh, hovered over the face of the deep while God began to create and, and uh, uh, form this world. And well, something similar seems to be happening here, even over Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit comes and, and uh, uh, re- uh, overshadows her womb as God uh, brings about the, what we call, theologians call, Christians call the incarnation. The incarnation. It's just a Latin word. Uh, the Latin word carne means uh, meat or flesh. And so incarnation the in, is just simply to be in the flesh. This is, this is God in the flesh. We believe that, that the man Jesus is himself God. This is the foundation of Christianity. This is what Christianity stands upon. If you're here and not a Christian, think, what do Christians believe? Well, oh, fundamentally, Christians believe that the man that, that we call Jesus of Nazareth was, was God himself in the flesh. That this is, this is the miraculous activity is at the heart of, of Christianity. And so we sometimes here as a church, we affirm the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we, we, we declare that we believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is not something we've came up with. This is what hundreds of millions of Christians have affirmed and believed throughout the ages. That Jesus was born of a human mother without the involvement of a human father. That the second person of the triune God, without ever ceasing to be God, united himself to the human nature forever. So it is therefore rightly said of Jesus, he is truly and fully God, and truly and fully man. We believe that. And, and, and by the way, uh, this, is, this is what Christians have believed from the very beginning. And yet, sadly, we live in a day where uh, tens of thousands of churches in our land now reject this truth. I wish I had a study that was a little more up to date. This is one I've shared with you before, but uh, uh, there was a survey of pastors in 1998, 
and, uh, and we, we discovered that 34% of Baptist pastors reject the virgin birth. One out of three. 44% of Episcopalian pastors, 49% of Presbyterian pastors, and 60% of Methodist pastors in 1998 reject the doctrine of the virgin birth. And it is the idea, I think, if I could step in their shoes for a moment, they say, well, let's just put aside the miraculous and let's just focus on loving our neighbors and turning the other cheek and peace on earth and all the rest. And, of course, all of that's wonderful and it's all what Scripture teaches. And, and, and they say, well, let's just focus on the stuff that's easy to believe. Well, it may make the Bible easier to believe, but my question is, is it worth believing? Is that a faith worth following? Because, listen, if you deny the virgin birth, as so many do in our day, well, what are we left with? Well, we're left with what? Mary is immoral. Luke is lying. The scripture is untrue. And worst of all, Jesus is just a man like you and I. He may be a better man, but he's just a man. And I wonder, what use is that? What use is there in a Messiah who is a naturally born son of a Jewish carpenter who told lots of stories and gave lots of wisdom and was kind to lots of people and then died and was buried in a Palestinian grave and there his remains lie and shall forevermore? What use is that? Well, I humbly will say, no use at all. That's not who Jesus is. What we need is something far more than an inspiration or an example to follow. My friends, we need a Savior. A Savior. We need one who is God and therefore perfect and therefore able to bear our punishment. And we need one who is a man and therefore like us and and able to stand in our place. What we need is a God-man. What we need is the Son of God in human flesh. And that's exactly what the angel tells Mary he will be. It is, in fact, after this incredible verse 35, somewhat surprising to read verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. I, find it, I just find those verses somewhat surprising to put together. Because in verse 35, he says, listen, the Holy Spirit is going to descend upon you. And, 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 and he's going to be the Holy One. And he is going to be the very Son of God. And then we get to verse 36. And, and he says, uh, by the way, your, your, your cousin Elizabeth, she's having a baby too. Uh, and and it, it seems like a pretty uh, <laughs> a big jump from one moment he's declaring the, the mysteries of the incarnation. The next moment he's spilling the country gossip. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm too imaginative, but I kind of see him, you know, kicking at the dirt there for a little bit and say, oh, you know, six months ago, I was over at your cousin Liz's house, right? You know, the one everybody calls Baron. Oh, yeah, well, she's having a baby. You should go check it out. I mean, what's he doing? What, why is this even relevant to what's going on? Well, you see what he's doing? He's giving a sign for Mary. Though she never asked for one. He's taking care of her. He's, Mary, you don't need to wonder. Go visit Elizabeth and you'll discover the truth. Of verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Don't you love that verse? Nothing will be impossible with God. And I think Gabriel ought to know, don't you think? He's not simply reciting scripture as I am. He actually watched God create the world out of nothing. He watched God make uh, billions of galaxies with what the Bible says, his fingers. He watched God fill the earth 
with vast and amazing animals and then craft man out of dust and a woman out of a bone. He watched manna fall from heaven and water part. He watched the lions be muzzled. He watched fiery furnaces be cooled. He watched God take the firstborn uh, of Egypt and give life to barren womb after barren womb after barren womb. He watched God send chariots of fire from heaven to take home a servant and God send down fire upon those who reject his mercy. He watched a whale swallow a prophet and a nation turn to God. So Gabriel ought to know he, uh, this truth, that nothing is impossible with God. Right? But he hasn't seen anything yet. Because God is going to enter creation as part of it without ever ceasing to be God himself. And he will be killed, and then on the third day later, he will rise from the dead as sins are forgiven and hearts are reborn. For nothing is impossible with God. And this is why we sing with such great joy, This is why we pray with such confidence, because nothing is impossible with God. I wonder, what is impossible in your life? What is impossible? Is your family too divided? Are the physical needs too great? Are the financial struggles too deep? Is the suffering or sadness too overwhelming? Is there too much sin to forgive? I tell you what the Bible says, nothing is impossible with God. There there is no sin he cannot forgive. There is no relationship he cannot reconcile. There there are no problems he cannot resolve. There is no need he cannot meet. There is no ministry he cannot bless. There is no grief he cannot comfort. There is no life he cannot reclaim. And there is no sinner he cannot save. That the God of the virgin birth is the God who makes all things possible. Nothing is impossible with God. Taking all of this in, Mary responds there in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And you might think, yeah, that's what I would have said too. (laughs) Huh? Really? Because you understand what saying yes cost her. I mean, her reputation is destroyed. She lives in a small village. Everybody knows everyone, right? They had calendars back then. They could count nine months and all the rest. They know what's going on. They they assumed that she betrayed her fiancé. They assumed she was an immoral girl. What what is she going to do? I know it looks bad, but there was this angel and, you know. In fact, she never outlived this. John chapter 8. Jesus didn't outlive it. The Jews said to Jesus, at least we were not born of sexual immorality. In other words, we know about your mama. Yeah, that word got out. Right? At least we're not, uh, uh, our, our, our moms and, and dads were married when they had us, they say. The Jewish Talmud, you can read it, by the way, Google it if you like. They even named the guy who Mary slept with. That was a Roman soldier, they say, named Penthra. So they tried to destroy her reputation. The rest of her life, she is marginalized, she is disgraced, she will never outlive these whispers, and yet she says, I am the Lord's servant. We're thinking about her relationships. How's Joseph going to handle this? Well, you want to know, read Matthew's account. He doesn't handle it all that well, does he? He assumes what you and I would assume and and, uh, proceeds to divorce her. 
And therefore, uh, if that proceeds, Mary, you're going to be a single mom for the rest of your life in a very kind of patriarchal, uh, conservative culture. What's her father going to think? What's her mom going to think? The shame that she would bring upon her parents. Her friends would shun her. Her parents might disown her. Joseph is going to leave her. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. What about the future hardships that she doesn't even know about? Uh, you you want to you take a four-day journey to Bethlehem when you're nine months pregnant? And then give birth uh, without the help of a midwife uh, in a, some, some backwater stable with just your uh, teenage husband there? Right? Uh, and, and then, by the way, uh, how about uh, fleeing to Egypt, a foreign country in exile, because people are trying to kill your son? You ever had a flee to a country that you don't know? Well, off she goes to Egypt, right? And then, and then what about your son grows up and you see your very son endure an arrest and an um, extrajudicial trial and, a, and a, a murderous crucifixion? And yet she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, pretty much, I was sharing this with my kids last night, pretty much the angel shows up and says, listen, uh, teenage girl, you're going to have a, a boy who is the son of God. Now you figure out the rest. So long. Can you imagine being a 13-year-old, having this dropped on you? And yet she says, I am the Lord's servant. You see this, this incredible submission that she has. She, she doesn't say, well, can, can, can we make this a little bit easier, please? All right? Do you mind talking to my dad, please? This girl must choose at this point between her love and her Lord. She must choose between her dreams or her God. And she says to the angel, you do what you think is best. After all, I am the Lord's servant. You see, Mary is not the object of our faith, but she certainly sets a wonderful example for us. All she needed to know was what God wanted, and that was enough for her. She is ready to follow God no matter what the costs are to her and, and, and I think, to be perfectly honest, all who would come to Christ have to do the same. This is a path that Mary walked, but this is a path that, that everyone who is in Christ must follow her. That we have to lay our plans before the Lord and say, you do what you want with them. Right? We all have our plans. We all have it set out. We all know what life is going to look at. And, and what we do typically is say, okay, God, here's the plan. Now you bless it. You supercharge it. Right? You, you, you sprinkle your dust on it, whatever needs to happen, so that my plans are completed and everything goes according to the way I want. And, and what if God says, no, no, I want to rewrite the script. I don't like your script. Let's try something different. Because her plan was wedding dress, marry Joseph, have some babies, and grow up in her little town of Nazareth and have a nice, simple life. Angel comes, shows up and says, new plan, new plan. And Mary says, well, whatever the Lord wants... He gets to write the script for my life. I love him. I trust him. And I am the Lord's servant. And, and I, I just want to, I'm settling here. We're going to end in a moment because I think too often in Christmas, what do we do? We shuffle into church and we do the kind of the Christmas church thing. And then we go on with our life. And we say, oh, yeah, I believe, and yeah, I'm, I'm with the pastor, and I believe Jesus is the Savior and all the rest, and born of a virgin. But God has absolutely no authority in your life. That God is kind of exists for you to say hello every Christmas time, maybe every Easter time, and then, of course, he's there in case you get in a jam. 
And then, okay, well, things are tough. Now, I'll call, uh, now we'll begin to talk. Now I'm going to go. It's almost rather for so many people in our land, it's not that I'm his servant, but he is mine. He exists to take care of me. He exists to make my life easy. He exists to help me out of my troubled spots. And I'm telling you, it is not so for Mary, and it is not so for the one who has truly surrendered their life to God. They must all declare, I am the Lord's servant. You use your power and wisdom, and you put me where you want, when you want, doing what you want, and I'm going to do it. Maybe hard, maybe easy, but I'm going to do it. It may be sick, it may be health, right? Some of you are in one of those places. It may be rich, it may be poor, it may be married, it may be single, it may be barren, it may be fertile, it may be failure, it may be success. I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I wonder, are you the Lord's servant? See, I count me in. I'm the Lord's servant. God, whatever you want, I'm in. I may not like it. It may be hard. I trust you. I'm in. My friends, I, I know no other way to be saved than to yield your life. The Bible calls this repentance. That you turn over your life to God and say, my life is in your hands. I trust you, and I give you myself. That may, be, may, that, that may be a more difficult life, but I'll tell you, it's a life that leads on to eternity. It's a life with the love of the creator that has made you. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that, that uh, uh, if you confess with your mouth, geez, I say this every Sunday, and here I am, I don't know it anymore. If you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right? There it is, faith. I, I, I confess that Jesus is my Lord. I'm his servant, therefore. I believe he rose from the dead, died for my sin. And the Bible says you will be saved. And I wonder, perhaps for the first time, there might be someone here, even in their heart, crying out to him, saying, yes, I, I want to be your servant. I yield my life to you. I surrender everything to you. I put my faith in Jesus. I wonder if there are some here, even for the thousandth time, you've gotten off the path, and, and God is calling you back now, Christian, and he's saying, will you not give up the reign of your life? Will you not give up authority in your life? Will you not give up your rebellion? And you will say to me even now, and mean it with all your heart, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your will. Our Father, this, this, is, this is the prayer, the desire that we all want. We want to surrender to you, and so often we hold things back, we grab onto them, we don't want to let go. But how much better are you than us? How much wiser are you than us? And so, Father, whatever plans we might have, plans you may have given us, plans you may have not, I pray that we lay them all at your feet and say, yes, Lord, you do whatever you will with my life. I am your servant. And we could do this because we know of your great love for us. For, for you not only would send your son into this world to become man, that he would grow up and he would die for our sins. What, what greater evidence is there of your goodness? What greater evidence is there of your uh, unimaginable love that you would give your son up for, for us? How many of us here would give up our son for others? Let alone, let alone those who rebel against him. Your love is overflowing and unimaginably good. You have proven yourself to be wise and, and righteous, and therefore may we surrender our lives to you, even as we rejoice in the glory of our Savior. His meekness and his might and his majesty may it fill our hearts this Christmas season, that our delight would be in him 
For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.